Buongiorno, benvenuto. Welcome to episode 8 of City Breaks Florence, in which we're going to visit another church. Oh yes, San Lorenzo this time. If you're thinking we've already been to the cathedral and Santa Croce and Santa Maria Novella, why are we going to another church? The answer is because this one is very much the church associated with the Medici family, so Florence's best-known residence. This was their family church. They built it, they paid for it, they commissioned the artists whose works you can see there, and in many cases they're buried here. In fact, the two tombs that people most often come to see are those of Cosimo de' Medici and the artist Donatello. Their two tombs are very close to each other, down in the crypt of the church, quite fittingly because they were friends throughout their lives. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the church itself, a bit more about the artwork that you can find inside it. Then I'm going to use the episode for a bit more detail on the biography of Cosimo de' Medici and a more detailed biography on the artist Donatello, who's very closely connected with this building. There's some very nice stories connected with that which I'd like to have the opportunity to retell. But before any of that, I wanted to talk just a little bit about the area of Florence around the church. If you go there today, what you see is a quite a busy market area, and actually that's exactly what it was in the days of Cosimo de' Medici as well. The centre of the San Lorenzo area today, apart from the church itself of course, is the Mercato Centrale, the central market which is a massive great food hall that was first opened in 1874 and in 1980 it was very much revamped and reopened with a second floor added. If you go there today you'll find the ground floor full of the most amazing little food shops, just everything you could possibly want that you can buy and take away to cook. So there are butchers galore, lots of alimentari, so grocer shops, you can buy tripe there, lots of fruit stalls, all kinds of pasta, fresh pasta, obviously, pâtés, cheese, wine, there really is no end, etc, etc. And if you go upstairs, you'll find equal abundance, except that this time it's um, food stalls, a whole variety of places that will cook food for you, and then the middle is a very large and very chaotic seating area to which you can take the food that you've just bought and where you can sit and enjoy eating it. And in the area just around the Mercato Centrale, the outside, you'll find lots more stalls, lots of leather goods, for example, bags and belts and shoes. So a nice place to browse if that's the sort of thing you're hoping to take home with you. I think the word there is that really it's worth having a haggle if you feel up to that. If you pay the prices that are marked, I'm sure nobody will say anything, but you may find that you can get yourself a bit of a bargain by having a go at haggling. And I started by describing that to you because it's very much the modern version of what the San Lorenzo area was like in the days of Cosimo de' Medici and Donatello. This market was known as the Mercato Vecchio, the old market, and it really was the centre of commercial life. There's a very good description of it in Paul Strathan's book, The Medici, describing, for example, all the stalls that were selling bolts of brightly coloured cloth, The cloth trade, of course, was one of the main industries in the Florence of that time. And if you came to the market, you could find bolts of brightly coloured material laid out on trestle stalls ready to be bought. 
Most of the cloth that had been produced, of course, was sent back on ships down the Arno to be taken off for export. But if you were a Florentine and you wanted to buy some, you could come to the market and there it would be for you. A very noisy place, particularly early morning when everybody was arriving. There'd be carts pushed along by farmers and many of them, of course, would have their animals with them as well. So you'd be able to hear squealing pigs and bleating sheep, cows coming along too. And then there's all the stallholders shouting out, perhaps some of them selling fish that they'd caught that morning in the Arno. And this would also be the place to come to buy meat, to buy cheese, to buy barrels of wine. Lots of fruits and vegetables would be brought into Florence from the surrounding countryside, and that too would have been sold here. All very seasonal, of course, not like today. So if you came in spring, you could expect to be buying onions and greens. Later on in the summer, perhaps figs and cherries and oranges. In the winter, there'd be far less choice, but there would be a lot of root vegetables. And Paul Strathan's got a lovely description of some of the people that you might have encountered if you'd come along on a market morning. So I'm going to read you that in full. Quote, Amidst the throng of townsfolk and yokels, the mendicant friars in their threadbare robes begged from passers-by. Hearing the blare of a herald's trumpet, the crowd would throng the entrance to the Via del Corso to watch a bloodied, stumbling criminal in rags and chains being whipped through the street amidst jeers on his way to the Bargello and a public hanging on the morrow. So that gives you an idea of the noisy, bustling, crowded area of town that was surrounding the San Lorenzo church. The church itself, the original one, was founded in the year 393 AD and in fact it was Florence's oldest church. At a point before the building of the Duomo, it had in fact served as a city's cathedral. But the San Lorenzo, which you see today, was begun by Giovanni de Bici in 1419. He'd made a lot of money, as I think I mentioned in a previous episode, from his banking operation, which was becoming very successful. And so he decided that what he wanted to do, at least with some of his profits, was to leave a church for posterity. It was going to be the family church, and he commissioned Brunelleschi to design it. Building began and continued for 20 years or so. And then things began to slow down a bit because, as with many building problems, financial problems ensued and things slowed to a halt. But the project was rescued by the next generation, so Giovanni de Bici's son, Cosimo, also felt that it was a worthwhile endeavour, so he found 40,000 florins to invest in getting the work started again. If I tell you that 150 florins would feed a family for a year, that gives you some idea of what a massive investment it was that he decided to make. But he'd really bought into this idea of the San Lorenzo being the family church and he wanted to see it finished. So building continued. In fact, it never was quite finished. Um, You'll notice that uh, in contrast to the other big churches, there's no marble facade on San Lorenzo. It's a plain stone building, and the reason for that actually is not because it was designed to be like that. It's because the money to pay for that never actually was found, and so it didn't happen. I don't know about you, but I think the outside of that church is actually really rather beautiful. It's plain, but it's lovely, and I think if every church in Florence had a similar marble facade, that would perhaps be a bit dull. Anyway, if you go inside, you'll find the Sagrestia Vecchia, which means old sacristy. And that was the beginning of the of the project. That's where they first started building. 
And in fact, it's the only bit that Brunelleschi worked on because he died soon after it was finished and other people finished the rest of the church. The Sagrestia Vecchia was a private chapel, which Giovanni de Bici decided would be the place where he wanted his tomb to be and also where he wanted his wife Picarda buried. So you can see today the plaque that tells you where they are. And their two grandsons, Giovanni and Piero, were also buried there. And just nearby is a lovely painting called The Dome of the Zodia, which was painted in about 1430 by Giuliano Pazello. He was Brunelleschi's second-in-command. And as well as helping with all the other things that needed to be done to get the building up, he painted this lovely painting. It's a depiction of a night sky, lovely deep blue sky and golden stars. Admired because it's very beautiful, but also of interest because it reflects the fact that astronomy and science in general were also becoming of interest in medieval Florence. We think of it more as somewhere where beautiful artwork was produced, but we mustn't forget that it was also a centre of things scientific, reflected, of course, in the fact that uh, in the later generation, Galileo worked in, in Florence. That's not to say that there isn't plenty of significant artwork in San Lorenzo, because there certainly is. And if you wanted to have a focus for the artwork that you're going to look at, perhaps the one word Donatello will do that for you, because some of his best work is to be found here. He did the bronze relief doors with carvings of lots of biblical characters, quarrelling martyrs, apostles, the evangelists, and scenes from the life of St John. But the piece of work for which he's best known that's here um, is the two bronze pulpits. He sculpted them both. In fact, it was one of his last works. He was in his 80s, or about the age of 80, when he did them. It's thought that some of his pupils had to help him finish it off, but he certainly did the bulk of the work. And there are, there are two pulpits, and they, they have different names. The Passion Pulpit, which has carvings of scenes showing the last days of Christ's life, and the Resurrection Pulpit, which then continues the story and tells shows rather what happens, happened after Jesus' resurrection. I think the two most visited things in the church are, in fact, the pulpits in the main body of the church and the two tombs down in the crypt of Cosimo and Donatello. I did a quick biography of Cosimo de' Medici in a previous episode, but just going to add a little bit of detail and then go on to talk about his friendship with the artist Donatello. So Cosimo was the head of the Medici family. His dates are 1389 to 1464. And he's known as Cosimo il Vecchio, the older Cosimo, because in the later centuries there were three other Duke's Cosimos, the first, the second and the third, and it's easy to get them confused. But when textbooks talk about Cosimo il Vecchio, they mean this one. Perhaps best known for his very prosperous running of the banking side of the family business. He made vast amount of money. But there was a political side to him too. He served on the Signoria and wielded a lot of power and influence in Florence. Too much in some cases because um, he was exiled at one point. He had a feud with the Albizzi family, lost the argument, had to leave the city, but had the last word because eventually he was invited back and then the Albizzi in turn were exiled. He's remembered partly for some of the buildings which he financed, he commissioned the Monastery of San Marco. He had the Palazzo Medici Riccardo built. 
and he was the founder of the massive book collection which the Medici family gradually amassed. He collected so many manuscripts that eventually he had to have a library built at the monastery of San Marco. He ran a house which was frequented by some of the most progressive scholars of the day. He encouraged them to meet in his house, to read together. They often read Plato's texts and translated them, which in fact led in the end to the society becoming called the Platonic Academy. And he encouraged them generally to discuss ideas. All of this was very important in the humanist era, when thinkers were becoming interested in what man could do, what man could learn. And last but not least, he was very much known for the fact that he was interested in the visual arts and he patronised artists. He would sometimes take a talented painter or a sculptor into his household to make sure that their expenses were paid and that they would be able to get on with their work. So people who owed their artistic career to him were painters such as Paolo Uccello and Filippo Lippi and most famously the sculptor Donatello. So all in all, when Cosimo died, it really was the end of an era. His body was brought from his summer house at Caleggi in a long procession, followed by many people, to the church of San Lorenzo, where he was buried in the crypt, and where a Latin inscription was written on his tomb to mark the fact that he'd been such an important person to the city of Florence. In Latin it read, Cosmus Medices Hixitus Est, Cosimo of the Medici was buried here. Decreto publico, by public decree, Pater Patriae, called Father of the Fatherland or Father of the Nation. So that shows how much people thought of him. I think he would have been very pleased to know that it was the will of the people generally that he should be so honoured. But also he would have been pleased to know that they had chosen for him a title which had once been used by the Roman emperors. The best-known Medici, for all that they did for Florence and for the arts, were also really rather keen on the prestige of the Medici, I think. And I don't think you could really have a more prestigious epitaph than that one, because of its imperial connotations. And down in the crypt, buried very near to Cosimo, is the artist Donatello. Their stories were intertwined during their lives, and so it was deemed fitting that they should be buried close together. Donatello was very much one of the leading sculptors of the day and he was a true Florentine. He'd been born in Florence in 1386 and he died there in 1466. We've already mentioned quite a lot of his most well-known work, for example the Statue of David and the Statue of Judith and Holofernes, both originally planned for the Palazzo Medici Riccardo, although in fact now found elsewhere in the city, and the two pulpits here in the San Lorenzo Church. You can see more of his work in the Baptistery and in the Bell Tower. And there's a statue of St George by him in the church of Or San Michele, also in Florence. And that statue, in common with quite a few of his other works, was very much noted at the time as being quite different from the usual statues, if you like, the sort of thing that other sculptors were doing. His statues always seemed more real. People noted at the time that this version of St George, looked like, quote, a real man and not a serenely beautiful saint. When he sculpted the story of Judith and Holofernes, he chose the very dramatic moment when Judith was just about to bring the axe down on Holofernes's head. And he did another sculpture called Herod's Feast, which actually isn't in Florence. It's in the Church of San Giovanni in Siena. But that too was very dramatic. It was a depiction 
of the feast at which John the Baptist's head was just being brought in on a platter. So again, something to look at and spend a lot of time talking about. Also much talked about was his David statue, of course, because his David wasn't sculpted in a heroic fashion, having just beaten Goliath. He was a little man wearing a fancy hat with his hand on his hip. It seemed really as if anything Donatello did was destined to be much talked about. Actually, he himself was also um, a subject of conversation because he was quite an eccentric man, so wrapped up in his art that, in fact, many of the ordinary things of life seemed to pass him by a bit. There's a nice story told of how Cosimo, who by this time had invited Donatello into his household so that he would be fed and watered and have plenty of time to do his sculpting, was rather alarmed to see the scruffy way in which Donatello used to walk through the streets, and so he brought him a scarlet cloak and gave it to him as a present in recognition of his talent. Donatello wore this cloak for a few days, was seen out and about in Florence in it. People talked about that too. And then he decided that actually it wasn't his style at all and he never wore it again. It doesn't seem as if Donatello was really all that interested in money. There's a quotation from The Lives of the Artists by Giorgio Vasari that makes that clear. So this is what he wrote. He said that Donatello was, quote, most liberal, friendly and courteous to all. He attached little value to his gains, but kept what money he had in a basket, hung by a cord from the ceiling, and his friends could take what they needed without being expected to say anything to him. A little bit otherworldly, perhaps. He didn't have to worry about earning the money for his food, because Cosimo saw to that, and he seemed to be just not interested in the normal business of the day. But he did have a hot temper, and there's another story, uh, also retold by Vasari, uh, which illustrates that rather well. This was while Donatello was in uh, Cosimo's employ, and Cosimo secured a commission for Donatello. A Genoese merchant of his acquaintance wanted a statue, and it was agreed that Donatello would produce it. And a month later, the life-sized bronze head was finished, and the merchant came from Genoa to see it. And I think he quite liked it, but he refused to pay for it. He claimed that Donatello had put the price up and that he was trying to charge him more than had ever been agreed. And an argument ensued and things got so heated that in fact they had to call Cosimo in to come and mediate. So Cosimo came in and picked up the statue and took it up to the roof of the building and put it on a parapet so that they could all see it in its best light while they decided what to do. The merchant still wasn't happy and said that he thought Donatello had only taken a month to do the work and yet now he wanted to charge more than 15 florins for it and he didn't think that was worth it. Donatello suddenly got absolutely furious and shouted out that he was an artist, not a labourer and he wasn't going to be paid by the hour and then he rushed over to the statue and knocked it over the parapet and it went crashing to the pavement and smashed the merchant was immediately very sorry he'd lost his statue and asked Donatello to make another one and promised that he would pay whatever was agreed. Donatello by this time was too cross to do any more work for this man and said no, he wouldn't do that. Cosimo tried to persuade him, but Donatello was having none of it. You'd think that Cosimo would be embarrassed and perhaps cross with Donatello for letting him down like this, but apparently what he had to say on the subject was the following... One must treat these people of extraordinary genius as if they were celestial spirits and not as if they are beasts of burden. 
So because he admired Donatello's wonderful talent, he was willing to put up with the odd eccentricity. And in fact, it is very touching to know that when Cosimo was dying, he was very keen to make sure that Donatello would be looked after, even after Cosimo's own death. And so he put in his will the idea that his son, Piero, should look after Donatello in his place. And he left a sum of money so that Donatello could be paid a weekly allowance for as long as he needed it and live out his days in the Medici household. In fact, Donatello only lived about another two years and then he too died. He had a stroke and took to his bed and never recovered. And he died on the 13th of December in 1466. So he was buried in San Lorenzo near Cosimo's tomb so that, as Vasari puts it, quote, his body might be near him when dead as his spirit had been near him in life. Vasari goes on then to describe Donatello's funeral using the following words. Donatello's death was much regretted by all his fellow citizens, almost all of whom accompanied him to his grave. All the painters, architects, sculptors, goldsmiths, and most of the people of Florence were in his funeral procession. It was a long time before they stopped composing verses in his honour. And I want to finish this section with just one more quotation, which gives another idea of the esteem in which he was held. So this comes from a book of drawings which were collected by an art historian called Don Vincenzo Borghini. And on two opposite pages, there's a drawing by Donatello and another one by Michelangelo. Michelangelo's full name being Michelangelo Buonarroti. And alongside them, Vincenzo Borghini wrote the following. Either the spirit of Donatello worked in Buonarroti or that of Buonarroti first worked in Donatello. So he put them on the par that they thought they were both equally admirable. Okay, so that's a good place to end our tour of San Lorenzo, at least of the church itself, because in fact in the next episode I'm going to stay around and about San Lorenzo because there are two other buildings very close to it which I'd like to talk about, one of which is the Laurentian Library, which is attached to the church, and the other one is the Medici Chapel, which is also built on to the back of the building. Two more buildings which underline the connection between this church of San Lorenzo and the Medici family. And as part of that episode, I would also like to do a biography of Lorenzo il Magnifico, Cosimo de' Medici's grandson and the other Medici whose fame has survived. In fact, you could possibly almost say that he's the best known and most fondly remembered of all the Medici. So for the moment then, I'm going to sign off. Um, thank you very much for listening and hope that you'll be able to join me again next week for our continuation of a tour around San Lorenzo in Florence. Thank you then. Grazie. Arrivederci. <laughs>